0: We're a little over halfway into this retreat. In the heart of the retreat, there's been seems to me and it seems to all of us in this teaching team that uh, there's been a lot of good work done individually, collectively. But I want to encourage us to Continue to use this time well. All too soon, we'll be back in the fray. And I have this opportunity to get into perspective the creations of the mind. Have the opportunity to get a feeling for practice, learn to recognize there is such a thing as a, a refuge, learning to shift the center of our gravity, shift what we trust to something uh, really trustworthy. moving, going to this uh, Buddha refuge, to this wakeful place. Going to refuge, learning to trust that it's good to take refuge in the way things are. Get a sense for the fever of always trying to get somewhere else, or the fever of always trying to change things. that's somehow in, in, in uh, counterintuitive, somehow in honoring, opening the heart to the way things actually are, something as simple as a breath, a step, a sound that there is an alignment with, uh, with truth, a gathering of power. And, and the irony, the paradox is that that's quite transformative. They were in such a more powerful position to respond, to, to really work with how things are. I don't know where this appears in the uh, Buddhist text. I thought it did. I looked for it once I couldn't find it but uh, put it out there anyway of uh, one of our cows gets stuck in the mud in Africa where we live the you know the to the Zulu people the the cattle are important they're just Real measure of uh, one's accumulation of wealth and and well-being is to have some cows, some cattle. One gets stuck in the mud. That's, you know, we want to do something about it. Now, one could just jump in there in the mud and keep the cow company. And there, I'm not saying that is valueless. (laughs) But a stuck cow might be a bit panicky and there might just be two of us in there flailing around. And somewhere I I thought, maybe I didn't get it right, but the, the Buddha was talking about if you have a solid perch, a fulcrum, a a place of groundedness, rootedness, then from there one can really help pull, draw, guide this fellow being in distress to a place of safety. These refuges are, are... We're learning to remember, to reconnect, to ground ourselves in in inherent, timeless, measureless qualities that are natural to the heart but that we lose touch with when we get so enchanted with the idea of stuff out there that we can get. Let's use this time uh, well. Uh, last night, the Tanisara opened uh, the door to, as we've been saying, this core teaching of the Four Ennobling Truths. And at the ending of that discourse, uh, the, the Buddha exclaimed, Kandanyo knows. Kundanya knows. He saw that one of his five disciples, his former colleagues in striving who had abandoned him, as Denisa was telling last night, because he'd gotten soft, accepting food, and not just that, from a girl, beautiful girl. (laughs) But when they they didn't want to listen to the Buddha at first. Then finally, after, after he, he announced, look, I've discovered the truth. And then he, he finally said, have I ever talked this way before? And they realized, no, no, he's never, ever. And they listened. And he laid out the discourse on Dukkha, Suffering, stress, its origin, the ending of suffering and that path leading to the ending. And the Buddha realized uh, in the course of that teaching that uh, one of the disciples had a breakthrough. His dharma eye opened. He tasted Nibbana, saw the true nature of peace, and when the, when the Buddha summed up what, what Kandanya knew, he said, he knows what arises, ceases. Whatever arises, ceases. And we might think, something got left out. That's <laughs> what they always do keep the secrets in the back room. Yet this, as we've mentioned earlier, that's powerful. Days arise and all kinds of things happen and now dusk ceasing. You might be happy to know Dharma talks begin Age, definitely start to sicken, <laughs> sputter on for a while longer, and die. Just warning you. Once in Thailand, when Ajahn Chah and the night and the jungle the cicadas making the noise, candles flickering, monk sitting, some probably experiencing some fatigue at the ending of a day's practice, but (laughs) you're a monk, spiritual warrior, hanging in there, and one of the little novices partway through the talk, this, this is a warning, just partway through the talk, in the dark, got his flashlight out, switched it on, the torch, and found the clock on the wall. <laughs> and I think I... It, probably would be fair to say that every single one of those monks went, mmm. Because I'm sure Ajahn Chah smiled and proceeded to give a two-hour discourse. Or more. But, nevertheless, Dharma talks begin and end, eventually. I'm just getting warmed up. Breath comes and goes. A lifespan comes and goes. Praise comes and goes. It's a powerful insight when we. <sighs> Stories. My first meeting with Ajahn Chang. I was at Oxford, like I said, on that road scholarship, going to head back afterwards to America to go to medical school because I had been accepted in medical school, but I got this unexpected scholarship, so I thought I would just broaden my education. And I was writing a thesis on art, science, and mysticism in the works of Aldous Huxley. That's basically the universe. You know, creativity and creativity. The discipline of science and religion, and Huxley realized how they're all part of a, a whole, how, how they come together. So my brain is trying to work it all out, but I was suffering. I felt so old. I was 24, felt 104, and I had come across the word enlightenment. Oh, just even the word. I just knew there's some possibility for, for, for peace. Heard about this wise teacher in the forest. Got a leave of absence to go see see this the teacher and I was uh, hoping like uh, Ram Dass Guru did to him, I was hoping Ajahn Chah would tap me would burst into tears for a while and everything would be bright. But he wasn't quite that way. But, uh, you know, I was thinking so much about life, and when I uh, got there, you know, he asked me why I came, and I mumbled something about enlightenment, got a bit sound petered out after a while. I didn't know what I was talking about. But um, when he then asked about uh, if I knew how to meditate, I had done a 10-day retreat and a half. And uh, I had learned some basic body scan type stuff. and um, So I felt like I was firmer ground. So I was talking about how I was sweeping my attention. And... uh, And I actually was quite good at it. I didn't say that, but I hoped he would see because I could not only sweep down one side of the body, I could sweep two (laughs) sides of the body simultaneously. And, uh, you know, I hadn't been meditating that long, but I thought he would see my potential. And maybe he would even say, you've arrived, I've been waiting. But halfway through my talking about my meditation, he got off his chair and got down on all fours and started sniffing around all over the place (laughs) like a dog and saying some things and the other people that were there were laughing and to say, because I was so intuitive, I could tell (laughs) that he wasn't that impressed. (laughs) And anyway, I finally said to my friend, what's he saying, who could speak Thai? And and finally, Ajahn Chah got off the floor with his lovely smile. And My friend said, well, what he's telling you is that you don't need to look all over the place. If you understand one thing well, you'll understand everything. If you try to understand everything, you might not understand anything thoroughly. When Kandanyo, that first disciple that broke through, realized what arises ceases, he touched into that impermanent nature. And when you see it deeply with a breath, with a step, with a sound that comes and goes, every single conditioned phenomenon is like that. On that first meeting, Ajahn Chah pointed to his own nose and says, be with your breathing. Let Sumaito, that was a senior Western monk, teach you how to be a monk. And I still look back with gratitude to when things get complicated, this is the value of this basic practice we were doing, just one step, one breath, steady just even with a little bit of poise and composure, we can notice this, what arises, ceases. That has profound implications. The Buddha says even one moment, even a finger snap, he said, of the perception of impermanence. What is shifts comes, goes. Even a finger snap, he said, has immense blessing in it. Because it begins to, little by little, put hairline fractures in that sense of solidity when we notice that it's true of the breath of feelings of praise oh wouldn't it be nice if everyone was always just saying nice things yeah it'd be nice but it's not that way wouldn't it be nice mom mom the full moon it's so beautiful it just always should be like that It's innocent enough, but it's a child. Wouldn't it be nice if everyone was nice? There's the full moon and now the the waning moon, the new moon, has gone. Praise, blame. But when we hold on to the praise and want it to stay, that's called birth. We literally grasp it and climb onto it. We lean on it. It's good. We lean because it seems solid. It seems like me, mine, praise. Or success. Or our beloved loved one. There's nothing wrong with that. But that identification with, that leaning on, that grasping, that becoming. It's birth. Then when the inevitable, not through any flaw in anything, the inevitable shifting, that, that there's a lurching, that's called death, aging death. The mind that doesn't understand then, then, then scrambles again to hold on to something else, pleasing. By realizing what arises, ceases, then a, a disenchantment happens which is very important. It's called Nibbida in the language the Buddha spoke, which means world weariness. We can in our society sometimes pathologize that and think, oh, they need medicine. Cheer up. But a world weariness can be an important turning point. Because at a certain point, when we realize whatever we grasp keeps dissolving, the new moon... (laughs) wanes the praise when we keep it's natural to enjoy appreciation and praise it's beautiful but then when we have to have it then we got to keep milking life and when it's not there we collapse so that disenchantment is a is a weariness we realize we're looking in the wrong place and that's called the root beginning of the great return, that dispassion, that disenchantment's important as there's a recognition of looking in the wrong place. We start to look back. There's that sense that we've been overlooking something closer to home, this very heart. Shah describes this this uh, this realization by very earthy terms he said if you look for certainty in that which is uncertain you're bound to suffer when we're wanting you know pleasant feeling or a the circumstances, the way we like them to be, we like confidence or we like whatever. We want it to be certain we're bound to suffer because of this changing nature. It is like standing next to a river, arguing with it. Why are you flowing that way? You should flow the other way. Or like boxing a tree. just hurt yourself. Or hassling some poor duck, asking it why it's not a chicken. It's misguided. Kandanya also shared what image helped him it wasn't listed in the original Pali version of the discourse, but in the Mahayana teachings, a sutra called the Sharangama Sutra, Kandanyo gives a little more information about what helped his dharma eye open. He said the, the, the phrase, guest dust, led his insight that then later had the Buddha give him the name Kandanya, which means the one who knows. He was the first one who broke through, who understood what the Buddha taught. And the image that Kandanya uh, shared was, he said, well, it's like at an inn, a a traveler or a guest comes, maybe has a meal, maybe stays a night, but then moves on. The guest does not stay. The host, though, remains. The guest comes and goes, does not stay. The host remains. Or, Kandanya went on, when the sun is out and the ray is shining through a ray of light, through a crack in the wall or through a window, One then can sometimes see the dust dancing in the light. The nature of the dust is to dance. It moves. The space is clear and still. The dust dances. The space is clear and still. The guests come and go and the host remains. When the heart is preoccupied, enchanted by what's actually just moving through the mind, if we don't realize its impermanent nature, because of the nature of language, language tends to impart solidity where it really isn't. All these nouns like me, hmm. You, good, bad, it, happiness, success, mine. These things seem really solid. So that identification then leads to the distress and then the seeking, and then the distress, then the aversion, because it's not there. So that's the engine of samsara, endless suffering. When there's the recognition that actually all these so-called conditions are guests, they're like dust dancing. We want the dust not to dance. Don't dance, you can do it. Come on, come on, baby. <laughs> Let me get another mantra in there. Ooh, humba, humba, humba. <sighs> quit dancing it's starting to get a little slower and then someone else opens the door Tenisera, you open the door look it's all moving <laughs> it's the nature of dust to dance it is the nature of thoughts to move and come and go thoughts are guests moods are guests feelings circumstances are like dust dancing. But have we, if we're so preoccupied with wanting dust not to dance or looking, arguing with ducks about how they should be chickens or wrestling with things that shouldn't be that way, we miss the stillness. We never get a sense for the host for that which remains like right now. This is the territory of the third ennobling truth. That's why it's so important. Let's use it, it's time that we have now with this accumulated samadhi. Oh, no, 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 no kidding. Sorry, <coughs> I hate to interrupt you. But, you know, we don't have enough samadhi. We... we you know, I've read somewhere, you've got to have hours of unmoving samadhi before you can even begin to think about having an insight. We have that kind of thought. We never. That's why Ajahn Chah would say something controversial, but which was important. He would say if you have enough samadhi to read a book, you have enough at least to notice, am I suffering? Eh? <laughs> am I suffering? Yeah, it hurts. Why? Because I don't want to feel like that. That's, impo- that's an insight. I don't want to feel... Just even noticing we're pushing against that, making a bowl or something heavy. Even though our mind be, might be scattered, can we have enough presence to notice, yeah, I'm suffering. I don't want it like this. Even just seeing that not wanting... Instead of me not wanting, it shouldn't be like that. For a moment it becomes a guest. Or as Ajahn Chah would say, a teacher It's teaching us the Dharma. Ah, and then we hear the voice of, from me it just becomes a version. It becomes a condition. And in a moment, when things are just what they are, even though it might be going on about shouldn't be this way, this, that, wanting, not wanting, we start to notice what remains. The sounds of this talk are moving right now. It is the nature of sound, of thought, to be dust-like, dancing. But notice this Movement is happening within a matrix, a context of stillness, of listening, the heart. There is an ending of suffering. It should be tasted. It should be cultivated, said the Buddha. It should, should be realized. Excuse me. It's something we taste, we realize in a moment. It's not somewhere else. Not located over there. In the qualities of the Dharma, we've been chanting in the morning. This Dharma, this timeless, peaceful nature, the Buddha said, is sanditiko. It's always here and now, apparent. It's akaliko. It's timeless. It's not located yesterday. It's not located tomorrow. Time happens within the Dharma. It's timeless. It's ehi pasiko, we chant that. Ehi means calm, it's inviting us. The door's open. It's inviting us. That's why this great return is important. This weariness of realizing, you know, wanting the full moon never to collapse, wanting praise never to turn to blame, wanting success always to be there. At some point when we realize that's, that weariness is important so we then start to notice the heart itself. Inquire. We can practice. Our teachers uh call this the the practicing of the third noble truth, practicing, just noticing, for example, how we fixate on the forms in this room, maybe. Old and young and this and that, and those we know, those we don't know, many, few. But without space, there is no form. So if we only notice form can our attention also widen it's just a slight adjustment of our attention this is called radical reflection it's a widening the vision to notice ah space around form like all the storms the sunlight the storms the snow the wind All these things happening in the space, but the space, untroubled. Similar with sounds. We can be so focused on the sounds we like, the sounds we don't like, or the phrases of liking us or not liking us, or the inner ones that think we're doing good, or the tyrant in the heart that... So many of us know that no matter what's going on, that it'll say, oh, Kitty Saul, for 39 years, it's pretty pitiful. Mm -hmm. You weren't mindful. You just can't believe it. We so focus on, but do we notice the silence around the sound? Every phrase, every view, I'm doing great, I'm doing terrible, I'm happy, and I'm happy, all these sounds are arising and ceasing in a silence, a living silence. Therefore it is said, as space is to form and silence, is the sound, so is awareness to all phenomena. The ultimate work of vipassana inside is to notice the nature of these changing conditions but noticing that they all arise and cease in this stillness, in this brightness, which could be called the heart. Someone was asking today, well, where is awareness located? Here's what the Buddha says about that. In the Sharangama Sutra, this discourse, Mahayana discourse on stillness, Saranga means the the samadhi that is really unshakable, is durable. The Buddha says, The primary misconception about the body and mind is the false view that the mind dwells in the physical body. Say that again. The primary misconception about the body and mind is is the false view that the mind dwells in the physical body, that mind somehow is located in the body. The Buddha goes on to say, you do not know that the physical body, as well as the mountains, the rivers, empty space, and the great earth, are all within the wonderful, bright, true mind. You do not know that the physical body, as well as the mountains, the rivers, empty space, and the great earth are all within the wonderful, bright, true mind. All locations arise and cease within this mind, like right now. The body. How do we know we're sitting? pressure on the chair on the cushion is manifesting, appearing within this knowingness. Our memories appear within the heart. Our speculations about but what's gonna happen? Will I have an insight, or will it just maybe I'll be the one that never has an insight? And God, they've been having it; they're going on about their insights in the thing, and I don't seem to have any. And I know Kitty Stone, Tanizura, and Seven Dara try to be nice, and but I can tell they're sort of disappointed that I'm not having any insights. What if I never have an insight? I might never have one. And that worry arises as a guest like dust dancing within the wonderful, bright, true mind that is the original brightness. It has never been disturbed, never will be disturbed. It's always here and now. but we overlook it in this same discourse. The reason people cultivate to accomplish awakening but don't really accomplish the goal is that they do not know the two fundamental roots They're mistaken and confused in their cultivation of practice. They're like one who cooks sand in the hope of creating a savory delicacy. You know, we could work hard on really cooking sand, really working hard, lovely spices. You cook sand, you don't get a savory delicacy. Or they in Zen, they say the polishing a brick, trying to get a mirror. Or Ajahn Chah saying, you know, asking a duck why it's not a chicken. Wanting what is changing not to change. Wanting the dust not to dance. So what are these two fundamental roots? The first is the root of beginningless birth and death. All this suffering, what is the root of it, the source of it? It's the mind that seizes upon conditions that you and all living beings and I are making use of, seizes on conditions and takes it to be me, me and mine. my body. Not Yes, look after the body, but wanting it not to change, wanting it not to age. That's cooking sand, hoping to get a savory meal. Seizing on conditions. That's the root of birth and death. And what's the second root is this primal, bright essence of consciousness that which brings forth all conditions. Because of conditions, we think it's lost. Living beings lose sight of the original brightness. Therefore, though they use it to the end of their days, they are unaware of it. And without intending, enter the various destinies of birth and death. Remember, on the first evening reminded us that Buddha said our heart is luminous. We just lose touch with it when we get fooled by what's moving through the heart. So now at this important part of our retreat where we start to use some of our accumulated presence give our self the chance to touch this third truth. Whatever the conditions, even if there's a storm going on in the body, thoughts and feelings and fatigue, can we let the dust dance? It's just moving stuff. That's what it does, that's what conditions do, and get a feeling for the silence, the awareness. What reveals this, this mindfulness, ruled by mindfulness of the Buddha are all things, overcome by wisdom are all things. With deliverance as essence are all things. Every circumstance has within it this spacious freedom. And merging in the deathless are all things. All these things come together in that which never dies, what the Buddha called Nibbana, the deathless, peace. What does that mean? All these things. Where do all things merge? Tanisra touched on one of the images that helps us see that. You know, we, when we look at the surface, we notice the big waves, the small waves of the sea. Where we are in South Africa, when we want to take a break, we go to the coast, the Indian Ocean. North of Durban to Amst- Sloti. Slunga to swim. Powerful sea. Big waves. Shimmering little ones. Gentle swells. Tanisha loves the sea. And I like doing what Tanisha likes to do. <laughs> But she's a little shy about going in, so I said, Don't worry, Tanisha, I'll go in. (laughs) First time, I marched out, went in, and this big wave crunched me. I just thought my neck was going to break, but I staggered up out. (laughs) Wasn't even aware it had ripped my suit off. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure Tanisha was very impressed but you know so wary the big waves and the shivering waves and you know and are there sharks lurking in the waves because they have shark nets out there but when we look at the surface you know it seems like discrete entities but if one looks more deeply all these apparent separate things merge it's all water in the depth Similarly, on this Mother Earth, we, we, we notice the trees, the, and we give them names, the birch trees, and the, I mean, the beech trees, and the oak trees, and the evergreen trees, and the indigenous ones, and the, where we live in Africa, the invasive ones, and the ones more with thyrus. these eucalyptus, they grow quick, but they drink lots of water, and we notice all, oh, Where do all of them merge? The ones you like, the ones you don't like. They're rooted in the ground. For trees not rooted in the ground, it's not a tree, it's dead. And even that, the tweaks, the branches, the wood goes back into the ground where all the distinctions merge. When we're focused out And because of language that concretizes the sense of discrete things, me, you, good, bad, we see all the separation. Where does it all merge? It is continually arising and ceasing in this ground of awareness. When we bow to Kuan Yin in the morning, my favorite love bowing. Because it's taking, it's not denying the discreet. Yes, there's the sense of me and you and this and that and what I like, but just remembering it's in this, when we find the body, the thoughts, touch our head on the ground and relax into that listening, that awareness. That place where all things merge, no more separation. We practice, especially with our thoughts, because that's the root of this imagining all this separation that leads us to put ourselves in this box and you're in that box and so we also practice noticing the ending of sounds like all these thoughts n- letting them noticing the silence the unmoving silence the gaps when we don't notice how thoughts are impermanent and dissolving when we just believe their realities then one little tiny thought like I just the smallest mark in our language I tiny mark you get a you I you here there yesterday tomorrow one little mark and you've got a million the proliferating tendency in our wise reflection when we start to realize every mark keeps dissolving back in the ground. Every sound. Get a feeling for each sound dissolving in the unmoving silence. Practice, as our teacher called it, minding the gap. In the London Underground, you know, if the gap is scary. Mind the gap. Might fall in there. As contemplators, we're diving in there. It can be scary, but it's 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 such a relief to begin to invite all these frames. Oh, I'm, I'm a basket case and I might never have an insight. No, 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 you're not hearing me. I might never have an inside. Keep noticing it dissolve. No, 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 but you've not really heard. What if I never have an inside? Dissolve. <laughs> who? Who is this? I'm suffering, don't you hear me? Me, Dumbo. Me, Dumbo is like a dust storm of sound with all kinds of feelings. It's just like all oh, that's doing what it's supposed to do, conditions dance. But we start to notice that stillness, that silence. inviting all the thoughts, all the opinions. I'm the greatest. Gosh, I've broken through. (sighs) Finally. can't believe it. I really put the time in, though, didn't I? (laughs) Broken through. Or then, oh, I thought I broke through. I I think I did, but God, I should have written it down. I know I should (laughs) have. I can't believe I didn't write. I would have written it down if someone hadn't taken my pen. You know, these precepts. Tanisha should have had us take them rather than just saying them. I can't believe it. Coming and going. Oh, I think I remember it. Coming and going. I'm the best, I'm the worst. Getting a feeling for what changes is not really mine bowing giving it back tasting that which remains i love if the buddha is always here and now one of my favorite what's called phrases that points the heart back to the deathless The, uh, uh, the essence of Zen, it's the essence of Kuan Yin's meditation, returning the mind to listen into its own brightness, returning the light. One of my favorite phrases is, what remains? Even in the midst of the most crazy stuff, just whisper, what remains? Even hearing that sound coming, letting it be, do its thing. Ducks can be ducks. Chickens can be chickens. The monkey mind can be the monkey mind. That's what monkey minds do. What remains? We touch peace. The great Thai master Ajahn Mahabhua says, When dukkha is completely stopped, nothing remains. All that remains is an entirely pure awareness. It's not even a noble truth, it's the purity of the heart. If you want, you can call it nibbana. All that I ask is that you know this marvelous, extraordinary Dharma. Its excellence exists of its own accord without our having to confer titles. this original brightness, this pure heart, whatever name you want to give it, our nature, even a moment of noticing change helps lead to that dispassion, that fading, that skillful disenchantment so that we can start to notice what remains, what's been here all along. So I offer these words first to contemplate this evening and very grateful to be practicing together with uh, you all. May the blessings of this day be shared with all beings, without exception, above, below and all around. Letting go with each out breath, giving back to nature, to dharma, relaxing, Wishing may all beings wake up to this jewel at the heart of the lotus, to this luminous heart. May all beings be free from suffering.
1: Ooh.